You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. From Bloomberg Radio. Should a death row inmate be able to have his pastor pray out loud and lay hands on him during his execution? It's a question the Supreme Court justices struggled with this week, and it led some justices, typically solicitous of religious rights, to express concerns about the possibilities of gamesmanship and a flurry of last-minute filings by death row inmates. Here are justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito. Can one's uh, repeated filing of complaints, particularly at the last minute, not only be seen as evidence of gaming of the system, but also of um, the sincerity of religious beliefs? What's going to happen when the next prisoner says that I have a religious belief that he should touch my knee, he should hold my hand, he should put his hand over my heart? But other justices, such as Sonia Sotomayor, seem to see the inmate's request as reasonable. His desire to have the pastor in the execution chamber when he's dying, because the whole purpose of the religious belief is that you should have a pastor to help guide you to the other place. Joining me is Richard Garnett, a professor at Notre Dame Law School and director of the program on church, state, and society. Rick, this isn't about the First Amendment. Tell us about the law at issue here. So this law, this Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, was enacted by Congress a couple decades ago. It had the purpose of providing additional protections to prisoners in the United States, protections that are more expansive than the ones that the Constitution provides. In this particular case, this is kind of the culmination of a number of disputes that have come to the Supreme Court in recent years where states have struggled with their execution procedures and specifically have kind of bounced around about how they're going to handle the presence of spiritual advisors and clergy in the execution chamber. Why have there been so many cases with questions about ministers being in the execution chamber? 
There's certainly a long tradition of ministers and clergy being present during executions. Now, in the United States in recent decades, as the execution process has become more sort of closed off, and as obviously we moved away from public executions towards private ones, and they're very strictly choreographed and controlled, it's not surprising that this issue comes up, particularly once you have this federal law in place that does explicitly protect the religious freedom rights of prisoners. Here, what we're dealing with, if you want to look sort of just in the last few years, what makes this case a little tricky to follow is the fact that the states have kind of changed practices. So, um, you know, you have uh, one state sort of um, denying access to a a clergy person of the condemns selection uh, altogether. Then the court says you can't do that. Then... um, uh, that is, you can't do it in a denominationally discriminatory way. You can, if you're going to let Christian people have their ministers, then you can't deny it to people who are non-Christian. So then a state says, well, if, if you're telling us we have to let in just any requested clergy member, we're going to change our policy and have no clergy coming in at all. Um, and then states change that practice and say, well, no, we'll let clergy be present, but they can't touch or they can't audibly pray. Um, so there is kind of a tangled history up and down, and I think the hope for some of us who've been following this case is that the court will clarify things a bit. So tell us about the concerns expressed by the justices during the oral arguments. Well, one thing that was clearly on the justices' minds, including on the minds of justices who have a record of being solicitous of religious liberty, was, you know, where is this going to lead? How do we draw lines between the kinds of clergy access that are permissible and the ones that might be disruptive or unsettling or even dangerous to the procedure? Obviously, this is a very sensitive context, and the justices recognize this. The government has a strong interest in wanting to minimize the risk of disruptions during an execution, especially because, as you know, there have been some high-profile executions where the process has been botched and the inmates have suffered. And so obviously states want to minimize to the extent they can the risk of that happening. But as some of the justices like Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan mentioned at oral argument, Congress has made it clear that they want states to be solicitous of religious freedom, even when it's inconvenient and even when it might be a bit challenging. States are expected to do what they can to accommodate religious freedom. So if you listen to the oral arguments, a lot of the for lack of a better word, more conservative justices were pressing the lawyers for Mr. Ramirez saying, okay, where would the line be? It's one thing you wanted to have a pastor touching the inmate on his foot, but what if you wanted to touch the inmate on his head or on his heart? And you say you want to have audible prayer, that's great, but what if the minister starts yelling really loudly and interfering with the communication and so on? So they were struggling with the the line drawing problem. The other thing that you heard the justices concerned about was that condemned inmates would use last-minute religious liberty claims as a way to kind of secure delays in their execution. That is, that there would be bad faith claims, or as Justice Thomas put it, there'd be efforts to game the system where, you know, at the last minute, an inmate would say, wait a minute, I've decided I need to have my pastor present, and thereby sort of require the state to have to change its procedures or put things off. And it's a long-standing concern in death penalty litigation that inmates might file last-minute complaints and possibly delay the process. But of course, the court's been dealing with those for a long time. After the oral arguments, did you get a feel for how they might rule? For me, it was difficult to come away from the oral argument with any clear view of what would happen, but I guess I did think that notwithstanding the line-drawing problems that various justices were concerned about, that the arguments did sort of circle back to the key point that Congress has told courts that they are supposed to insist 
that state government accommodate prisoners' religious freedom to the extent they can. And so if we have a record in this Ramirez case that shows that it's possible to accommodate requests like these in ways that don't disrupt prison practices, I suspect that's what the justices will say the act requires. Justice Amy Coney Barrett expressed concerns that if prisons didn't allow this, then perhaps the next step in the future would be prisons barring worship services. She was, and like a lot of the justices, again, this is something we see not just in the Supreme Court, but in law generally, is that judges, when they are formulating rules and when they're applying rules, they're often thinking about the next case. Where does this go? So a court might think, if we allow Texas to say no ministers may touch an inmate in the execution chamber because that's too sensitive, then maybe in a couple of years, another state decides, you know what, allowing ministers to be physically present for church services is too dangerous. We're just going to have to do it all by Zoom now. That's a concern about things going in one direction. And then, of course, the concern going in the other direction is, okay, well, if we say that this act guarantees a religious inmate's right to have physical touch and oral prayer in the execution chamber, then the next inmate is going to say that there has to be physical touch, like I said, on the head. There's always this concern about how to find lines, how to anticipate the next case. That's not unusual. Did it strike you as unusual that some of the justices who are normally solicitous of religious rights seem to have real concerns in the death penalty context? Yeah, I wouldn't put it quite so starkly. It was just clear that those justices were anxious about some of the possible implications and the line drawing problems. One of the things that's worth emphasizing is that in the Supreme Court, when it comes to religious freedom under this particular federal statute, the justices have not been divided on ideological lines. The last one called Holt versus Hobbs involved a prisoner in Arkansas who wanted an exemption from a no beards rule because of his religious faith. And he won nine to zero. And there's an earlier case called Cutter, again, not divided on the on ideological grounds. So even though the justices obviously disagree about many criminal justice issues and about capital punishment, there's been something like a consensus that federal law requires states to accommodate religious objectors and religious believers' special needs, even in prison. I think this case, just because the death penalty context is so sensitive and because the justices have a lot of experience with these last-minute appeals, that some of them were nervous about the implications of this particular claim. But I'm hoping in any event that those concerns were answered and that, you know, they'll continue with the practice of, again, sort of a consensus view that prisoners' religious freedom rights should be protected to the extent possible. So I have to say, I'm surprised in this instance. The Supreme Court halted his execution and fast-tracked the arguments. As long as the minister could be in the room, is it so critical that the minister touch the inmate? Well, so interesting. I mean, uh, this is an this is it's an important point about religious freedom cases generally. Is that um, courts have a have a challenge in that the religious freedom protections that exist in our laws exist for everyone, including for people whose religious practices are less familiar to us. So, um, you know, Ramirez and his pastor uh, assert, and I don't think we have any reason to think that they're insincere that it is part of their religious belief that the that the laying on of hands is an important part of um of prayer for another person that's not to say that prayer can't happen without it but it's an important uh it is an important component of how they think about praying for other people so you you lay you lay hands on their bodies and that's a practice i i was familiar with from uh when i was a kid going to um assembly of god schools and so on 
Um, so I don't think that's so unusual. But, you know, you, you could imagine um, somebody who said, well, you know, what has to happen for me in my execution chamber is that um, uh, my uh, minister, my spiritual advisor has to be allowed to um, chant and light candles and burn incense and perhaps play some music. And that's, that might be more disruptive. So, And the problem – well, not a problem. It's just the fact – that for courts that are trying to administer these religious freedom laws, they can't really pick and choose among the religious beliefs that they happen to share. Instead, they have to ask, is the, is the claimant sincere? If they're not sincere, they don't get the benefit of these laws. And is the claimant's belief actually being burdened? If, if there's no real burden, then they don't get the benefit of these laws. And if they are being burdened, and if their belief is sincere, then the burden is on the government to justify why it's doing what it's doing, and um, you know the government has to ha has to point to a, what the law calls a compelling interest to justify any kind of burdens on sincere religious practice, and they have to convince the court that there aren't other avenues that are available that would make it possible for them to to accomplish their interests. So that was what a lot of the oral argument was about. You know, some of the justices were pressing the lawyer for the state, okay, what exactly is it that Texas says is the important interest that requires them to not permit touching uh, by a minister or oral prayer? And why is it that Texas thinks there are no less burdensome procedures that could adequately ensure that the execution process goes off smoothly? Um, and, and and again, there's no there's there's no way around it. This is the inquiry that Congress has told courts to do. That they're, in a sense, they are they're told they're supposed to second guess the government. Uh, they're not supposed to just defer to the government when it says, "Look, we want to do this because it's convenient," or "We don't want to do that because it's inconvenient." That's not good enough. Uh, if there's a burden on on sincere religious exercise, at the same time, it's clear that um, prison administrators and so on are allowed to enact regulations to keep things safe. And um, so the, the court is aware of that, but nonetheless, it has to carry out its statutory duty and, um, and vindicate to the extent reasonably possible the religious freedom interests, even of somebody who's been condemned to be executed. Thanks, Rick. That's Professor Richard Garnett of Notre Dame Law School. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists, but what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. 
and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. For the second time in a little over a month, the Supreme Court considered a case involving state secrets. This time, the FBI was being sued for spying on the Muslim community at a mosque in Irvine, California, starting in 2006. The government invoked the state secrets privilege, claiming that in order to defend itself, it would have to reveal state secrets. Justice Neil Gorsuch suggested that the government couldn't have it both ways. And so the government's really at a choice. Does it want to disclose the evidence and defend itself, or does it want to let a judgment, a tort judgment, go ahead against it and, and keep, keep national security safe? Joining me is the attorney for the plaintiffs who argued at the Supreme Court, Ahilin Aralanatham co-director of the Center for Immigration Law and Policy at UCLA Law School. Start by telling us about your clients. Clients are three men, Muslim Americans, who lived in Southern California, Orange County, in 2006-2007. Sheikh Fazaga was then the imam at, at the Orange County Islamic Foundation in Mission Viejo, which is sort of north of San Diego. He's now in Memphis, Tennessee. The other two, Yasser Abdul Rahim and Ali Malik, were congregants at the Islamic Center of Irvine, which is a large mosque in Irvine, California. And they're all interesting, wonderful people. Sheikh Tazaga is also a, a licensed therapist and originally an Eritrean immigrant, but lives here now for more than 30 years. Ali Malik is born and raised Orange County. He's very sort of Southern California kind of guy. He's a surfer, young Republican back then, now a I guess, middle-aged Republican. <laughs> Yasser Abdul Rahim is an uh, Egyptian immigrant, an IT person. He designs, actually, I don't understand it, something involving video games. He works for Nintendo now. Tell us what happened at the mosque. The FBI sent an informant into actually something like eight or ten mosques in the that Southern California area for the purpose, according to that informant, who's since come out, for the purpose of gathering information on Muslims. And his instructions were to gather information simply on Muslims and then to focus, if at all, on religious leaders, on people who appeared more devout, like going to early morning prayer or changing their dress, people who you know looked like they were, if not religious leaders, like social leaders, people who had influence with youth, things like that. And he focused on the three of them, and he explains this in his declarations in the case because of their kind of connection to these different sort of profiles. So Sheikh Fazag obviously being the imam of the mosque. Ali Malik is a young man at this point, but just starting to embrace his faith more. So he was starting to dress a little bit more conservatively. He had studied Arabic abroad and studied Islam. Abdul Rahim actually, I think, sort of hadn't done anything, but the imam had asked him, said, hey, here's a new person who's a convert. Do you want to kind of show him the ropes a little bit and teach him about Islam? And he was just living with a, in a house with um, some other young Muslim guys who just played a lot of video games, basically. And the informant started targeting all three of them for these 
reasons. You know, so he started spending a lot of time in Abdul Rahim's apartment. He befriended Ali Malik and tried to insinuate himself into his life, try and find out about his family, you know, if he had marital problems and things like that. This, this is what informants in the FBI system do. They try and find these things so that they can use them to leverage people into giving information about their friends and neighbors. So he had interactions with them. There was no violence of any kind or anyone planning any you know, terrorism or anything like that. And then over time, because of that, the informant tried to instigate that. So he tried to ask people first about jihad and about violent jihad, their views about the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And uniformly, he was told that's not proper Islam. We don't believe in that and kind of tried to be sent back on the path of studying the religion and not, not focusing on those things. But he persisted and eventually he scared people. And so then actually both Ali Malik and Yasser Abdul Rahim, he specifically became scared of him. And they reported him both to a sort of prominent community leader who's the head of the Council on American Islamic Relations in LA, Hussam Ayloush, and also the FBI. <laughs> and and Hussam Ayloush also called the FBI about this informant. And then his kind of cover was blown. They also because he was continued to talk about these things and they were I think were very I think a combination of perhaps scared of him and think thought maybe he was an informant. Islamic Center of Irvine actually got a protective order barring him from coming into the mosque. And then he became basically useless for the FBI. And then something happened that we don't totally understand. He had some kind of falling out with them. And then he went public. And his status was revealed in a criminal prosecution for immigration fraud. It was the only prosecution that came out of any of this. And that prosecution was itself dismissed on the government's motion. There was not a single conviction that came out of any of this. And then he went public with all the information. So you sued based on religious discrimination. What happened to your lawsuit? We sued under both religious discrimination and privacy violations. The government then came in and said, we promise we're not spying on people solely because of their religion, but anything else that we would say in order to explain why actually what we're doing is lawful would require the disclosure of secret information. And because we can't defend ourselves with the secret information, your religion claims have to be dismissed under the state secrets doctrine. So the district court dismissed the case. The Ninth Circuit revived it. What was your argument before the Supreme Court? We made two arguments before the Supreme Court, and both are strong. One argument is the state secrets doctrine does not authorize dismissals where the plaintiffs can prove their case without secret information. There's 150 years of law on this preceding the Supreme Court's adoption of state secrets privilege, in this case called Reynolds in 1953. We exhaustively looked at every single case every secondary authority cited in the opinion. There was also an amnesty from this historian, Professor Laura Donahue, who was an expert on the history in this area as well. And you can look for literally every case, and there's not a single one that dismisses on their theory. Dismissals on their theory really don't start in earnest until after 2001, when there's arguably perhaps one or two cases in the 1980s and 90s. Even all told, it's maybe five lower court decisions, and that's it. So the overwhelming authority disfavors their view. The other argument that we made was that because this is a case about the electronic surveillance of Americans on U.S. soil, it's governed by a law called the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. And that law makes very detailed rules for how to handle information that the government says is too secret to disclose to the public or to litigants. And it does not permit dismissal without an adjudication of whether the surveillance was lawful. Instead, it requires the government to give the information to the district court, the court to look at it in secret, but the court decides 
did the government break the law? So those were the two arguments we made. Under either approach, you can't do what the district court did. A lot of the news reports say the justices struggle during the oral argument. What was their main concern? I think on the first point, the state secrets point, at least for me, it seemed that much of the discussion was about whether the court should reach it at all or instead ask the lower court to decide it. There were some lower court cases after 2001 that had adopted this broader approach that the district court adopted. But in 2011, there was a Supreme Court case, General Dynamics, which seemed to strongly call into question the validity of that approach. But you had these earlier circuit court cases that had adopted it. And so there was seemed to be at least some concern about whether shouldn't the court below, in this case the Ninth Circuit, first examine whether, given our decision in general dynamics, this law should be reconsidered. And then you know, the government had said, well, that's not really properly here. And that was some of the discussion about that. There was a little discussion about whether we're right or the government's right on the actual state secrets question itself. Justice Gorsuch had some, I thought, very intense questioning of the government on that subject. But most of the discussion seemed to be about whether it should be reached now at all or instead should be first passed on by the court below. On the second point on FISA, there was more discussion of the merits of the arguments itself, the textual arguments, the structural arguments. So the justices didn't want to reach the question on FISA or maybe didn't want to reach any question, just send it back to the Ninth Circuit? You know, I'm I'm always... And this is not my first argument, and so I, you know, you, you hear the things that happen, and then you read the opinion later, and it doesn't come out the way it's kind of flagged to do. There were certainly some justices that were talking about that, and they discussed that with me very directly. But who knows if that's what they'll do if they'll you know, go back in conference and decide to do some completely different thing. It's, it's very hard to predict. But yeah, there were certainly several justices that talked about the idea of maybe just sending the case back, either without deciding anything about FISA or the state secrets privilege, or perhaps deciding something about FISA, but not the state secrets privilege. Justice Breyer said to you, so do you really care whether the government's right or wrong on the displacement of the state secrets doctrine by 1806 or whatever? Well, he was saying, you know, if you don't believe in dismissal, then do you care? And I think that question exactly, it gets to a a basic point about our arguments. Definitely happy to hear your math back because I felt like it it meant that he understood what we were saying. If the dismissal is not available under the state secrets privilege, then it doesn't matter whether FISA applies or not, because either way, the district court was wrong and we should be allowed to proceed, whether under FISA or under the general rules of civil litigation. I took that question to mean, of course, the antecedent question is, is there dismissal available under the state secrets privilege at all? Because if the answer is no, then who cares whether or not what FISA does in this context, because the decision below, the, the district court decision was wrong. And so I was hoping, <laughs> uh, optimistically, that what follows from that question is, send it back, tell the court they did it in the wrong order. They should first decide the dismissal question, and then we can either leave the FISA decision intact or we can just you know, vacate it as having been unnecessary to the decision. Tell us about the Seventh Amendment problem that Justices Alito and Barrett seemed interested in. We had sued both the government in its official capacity, and we had also sued the individual defendants for damages. And individual defendants in civil litigation generally have a jury trial right and also a due process right. And so given that what FISA contemplates is that the court decides the question about whether the surveillance is lawful in secret, you know, I got a lot of questions from both Justice Alito and Justice Barrett about whether it's constitutional to adjudicate the rights of the individual defendants in a proceeding that is secret. And what I was saying was, we may never get to that question, because as in all civil litigation, the parties may win or lose on summary judgment. And summary judgment is consistent with the Seventh Amendment and the due process clause. And so if we win on summary judgment, or if they win on summary judgment, then we're never going to even get there. So why are we talking about this now? 
the exchange you had with Justice Barrett seemed very contentious. Did you feel like you were being really put on the spot there? Justice Barrett really quizzed you on that point. Here's part of that exchange. But uh, so so can that um, happen if there's a constitutional element to the privilege? So um, I mean, if we're talking about Article Two, um, or no, but you're asking about a well, due I'm, process. Well, I'm asking element. like chips fall where they may, and, and you're you're saying that that's fine even if it violates the due process rights of the individual defendants. Well, I think so. Again, there's another option. I want to make sure I get to talk about the other option. Did you feel like that got a little contentious? I wouldn't call it contentious. I, I think she had hard questions for me, and she'd obviously thought a lot about the Seventh Amendment problem and due process problem. And no, I, I didn't. I didn't feel like I was being sort of attacked anyway. I mean, she gave me. I said I two things I want to say about this, and I said the first one. And then she asked me a question about the first one again. And I said, okay, I, I still want to say my second thing, and then I gave my answer. <laughs> and she and she and she nodded at me. She nodded at me in the courtroom. You know, she nodded at me, and she's like, yeah, you'll get your chance. I said the thing again. Then she asked me another question. I didn't ask for the second one again. She still, you know, answered that. And then, and then I said, okay, let me talk about the other thing. And she completely let me do that and listened and, you know, let me do it. At least in the room, it, it definitely didn't feel like hostile or attacking or anything like that. I mean, it definitely felt like she thought this was a problem. And so she was giving me every chance in the world to try and persuade her that it was not. I'm not sure that I succeeded. The argument was scheduled for 80 minutes. It went two hours. So- <laughs> I know. I know. So the justices are firing questions at you. Is it mentally exhausting? I was very pleased by the fact that they, I mean, obviously you don't know if they're all engaged the whole time because they're going kind of one at a time. But clearly, you know, they seem certainly all engaged through the whole time. And I have listened to arguments where it feels as though the justices are kind of done with it, where they all pass on the questions. Not all, but many of them pass on the questions at the end. And the fact that so many of them had questions for me right through the end, it seemed that they were really grappling with it. So I was very happy about that. But to answer your question, yes, it was exhausting. It was definitely exhausting when I walked out. I thought, and I've done many circuit court arguments and two other Supreme Court arguments, and I thought, I don't think I've ever been in an argument that was that intense. It felt like for one full hour, I was just, you know, in that kind of mental space where you're trying to just be totally aware and think and be as responsive as you can and think about all the implications of your argument or what you're saying. And it was, yeah, it was really tiring, really, really tiring. Well, thanks for spending this time with us. That's Ahilan Arulanatham co-director of the Center for Immigration Law and Policy at UCLA Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for the Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash Radio.